for you. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Um, my name is Chris Fudo. I'm counsel at Foley HOAC, and I am, um, uh, oh wait, this isn't a COVID-related uh, BBA. I don't have to give my COVID title. Uh, <laughs> um, so it's actually very, very exciting for us to talk about things that aren't COVID-19 related, so that's good. Um, but um, we um, do this on, uh, typically try to do this program on an annual basis. Um, it's been a little bit over three months over the year anniversary from we last did this um, in, 2000, in April 2019. Partly we delayed it because we weren't getting a lot of activity um, in terms of interesting cases from the SJC and the, Supreme, the US Supreme Court that touched upon the area of employment law. And um, so we decided it was time you know, to take, make do with the cases that we had. And then lo and behold, yesterday, we got a gift from Justice Gorsuch, and who decided to, uh, and the rest of the uh, rest of the um, the majority in in Bostock to um, Bostock to uh, give us uh, the, um, the the ver the landmark um, Title Seven uh, sexual orientation gender identity case. So we're actually going to start with that, and I'm going to turn it over to um, uh, to Barbara Rob, who is. Um, uh, not only a very, 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 very um, well-known and highly regarded plaintiff side um, employment attorney in Boston, but also my co-chair of the BBA Labor and Employment Steering Committee. So uh, thanks, Barbara. Thanks, Chris. Um, so uh, a very uh, monumental and historic decision yesterday coming down um, from the Supreme Court in the Bostock opinion. Um, I think we could just take a pause and just realize that until yesterday, in 26 states of our nation, an employer could fire someone simply for being gay or transgender, and that was completely lawful. Um, under Bostock, such actions are now unlawful under Title VII as being based on, being based on sex. Um, in a 6-3 decision written by Justice Gorsuch, the court held that Title VII prohibits an employer for firing someone simply for being transgender or homosexual, and made this quite eloquent and uh, very powerful quote at the very beginning of the opinion. Quote, an employer who fires an individual for being homosexual or transgender fires that person for traits or actions it would not have questioned in members of a different sex. Now there are several ways in which the court flushes out this, this principle and this analysis. Um, the first is just basic language analysis and construction and application to various examples. Um, one being that you have a model employee you have two model employees um, uh, and they each go to a holiday party um, and they're introduced to their, their, you know, making introductions of their spouses to their manager. Um, and one model employee introduces uh, their, their wife, Susan, to the manager and another employee does the same. Now, who's going to be fired? Um, it depends entirely on whether the model employee is a man or a woman. 
and therefore under that very simple analysis, it must be based on sex. Um, and another uh, aspect of the analysis, a key aspect of the analysis that Justice Gorsuch um, got into in some depth was the reliance heavily on three prior opinions to illustrate this point. Um, one being the Phillips opinion decided in um, 1971, which involved discrimination uh, based on motherhood obligations. Um, the court deemed that it was a violation of Title VII to refuse to hire a woman based on having young children, despite the fact that discrimination also depended on being a parent of young children. It still was based in part on sex. Um, another opinion heavily relied upon by the Supreme Court was Manhart deci decided in 1978, um, which was discrimination based on women having to pay uh, higher um, premiums on, on uh, pensions um, because of their life expectancy to balance out the groups of men and women in terms of who would reap the benefits um, of, of the pension. And uh, the court uh, reminded all of us that the language of Title VII is discrimination against an individual. And so even if you could, uh, the defense could argue that men and women are being treated um, even-handedly and equal, ultimately, if the individual is being discriminated against based on sex, it's a violation of Title VII. Um, and finally, the third major opinion that the uh, Supreme Court that relied upon was the on-call decision, uh, much more recently decided in 1998, which is discrimination based on same-sex sexual harassment. Um, the uh, court found many of the defenses to be unpersuasive, uh, the, the, the most laughable, in my opinion, being that in a, if you asked someone who was discriminated against, um, who was you know, gay or transgender and, and who was discriminated against in employment, their normal way of speaking about it would be, I, I was discriminated against based on my sexual orientation. I was discriminated against based on being gay or be, based on that I'm transgender. They wouldn't mention, they wouldn't mention gender, they wouldn't say sex. And, um, the, the court uh, dismissed that argument out of hand as, as not being um, at all persuasive on that at the end of the day, the discrimination is based on sex and Title VII's clear language prohibits it. Um, another defense that Gorsuch found and, and the majority of the court found unpersuasive was that at the time that Title VII was enacted that this type of protection was not envisioned. Um, and the court reminded us that when uh, language is unambiguous, um, that simply doesn't matter, that the court's uh, role is to enforce the law. And the law clearly states that discrimination based on sex is unlawful under Title VII. And therefore, regardless of what the legislature or Congress may have had on their minds at the time, um, is not relevant um, in, in, in the analysis. Um, uh, I think it's important just to note that the, the 
case was based on um, three separate cases. Uh, Bostock uh, worked for Clayton County, um, Georgia, as a child welfare advocate, and he was there for 10 years. And after he joined a gay softball league, um, there were some disparaging comments made um, by, by key stakeholders um, in, in, in the county. And soon thereafter, he was, he was terminated. Um, Donald Zarda was a skydiving instructor in New York for several seasons. And after he was mentioned, after he mentioned to uh, his manager, his workplace that he was gay, he was shortly thereafter fired. And Amy um, Stevens worked as, at a funeral home in Michigan um, after being diagnosed with um, gender dysphoria. She wrote to her employer notifying that she planned to live and work full-time as a woman after returning from vacation. Um, and I just think it's important to uh, acknowledge that um, both, both Mr. Zarda and Ms. Stevens um, uh, have since passed and are unfortunately not here with us to celebrate this monumental case. Um, but we, we thank them uh, for this amazing fight and um, are celebrating that this uh, momentous uh, opinion and I'm sure their uh, you know, relatives are doing the same um, and thank them for their, for, their, uh, for their courage in bringing these cases. So with that, um, we have a lot of cases to cover. There's a lot more we could talk about in terms of the analysis of Bostic, but I don't wanna take up all of my, uh, my colleagues' time here. So we're gonna move on to uh, the next case. Well, also very good job for getting the case, the decision yesterday. So <laughs> not a lot of lead time. Thanks, Barb. Um, now I'm going to turn it over to um, uh, to David Brody. David is partner at um, Sharon and Lodgen, and he, like Barbara, represents mainly um, uh, the employee side. And he's going to talk about our next Supreme Judicial Court case, which is Lamps Plus the Varela. Thanks so much, Chris. And Barb, thanks for picking up the case that came down yesterday. Not only came down yesterday, but I think with appendices topped, what, about 170 pages? So you're quite the speed reader. Appreciate it. Um, there are a lot of interesting cases that we get to go through today. It's not abundantly clear to me that the one I'm about to discuss tops that list. So I'm going to do my best to move through it quickly. In, in Lamps Plus versus Varela, we are dealing with an arbitration agreement. And the, the fact, rather succinctly, is that a hacker was able to trick an employee into disclosing confidential information about 1,300 employees, uh, one of whom, uh, Frank Varela, had a fraudulent tax uh, re return filed on his behalf. He brought claim and attempted to bring it on a class basis. The company moved to dismiss the case and compel arbitration. And while the court did agree to dismiss the case without prejudice and compel arbitration, the court refused to do so on an individual basis as LAMPS Plus had requested and instead authorized class arbitration. LAMPS Plus then proceeded to appeal and the Supreme Court ruled on the case. In a five to four decision, the conservative justices argued that because the employment, the arbitration agreement itself did not explicitly provide consent for class arbitration, that under the FAA, it was improper for the district court judge to have ordered class-based arbitration. Um, 
there were a number of dissents that went about the issue differently, but Justice Ginsburg was able to rather quickly point out that there is a certain degree of irony in arguing that the first principle of arbitration is that it is strictly a matter of consent, but here the majority is compelling uh, employees into individual arbitration when they surely would not choose to proceed to do so or have envisioned that they were doing so when they signed these arbitration agreements. Um, ultimately, I think this was likely a policy-based decision as Justice Kagan was able to point out uh, rather eloquently in her dissent, noting that this opinion has more than a little in common with the court's efforts to pare back class litigation generally. And so with that, um, I think I'll kick it back to Chris, who will take us to our next case. Yes, and I, I'm not going to, I promise you won't have to hear me chime in on each one, um, but I did want to get, make sure all of our speakers got their appropriate introduction. Our next speaker, um, someone else joining me from the management bar and uh, is um, my, I want to say colleague because she's my former colleague, but counsel at Choate. Uh, Lindsay Cruiser. Lindsay, you want to take us through our next Supreme case, Supreme Court case? Sure. Thanks, Chris. So much like David, my next case is not perhaps one of the most fascinating we're talking about today, but I think that it has an important uh, holding to it that folks on both sides of the bar will be interested in. Uh, so Fort Bend's B. Davis, uh, the plaintiff in there, Lois Davis, was a public employee who filed complaints of sexual harassment and assault through her county, and where, where she was employed through the HR department and subsequently with her local Texas Workforce Commission, which is the equivalent of our MCAD. She uh, was terminated. I'm sorry, guys, I'm having a technical issue here. Okay. She was terminated uh, after bringing her initial claims um, and she was terminated when she said she couldn't come to work because of a religious commitment and thereafter her employee, she took off time for the religious commitment anyway and was fired. She didn't ever amend her charge at the local level, but she did submit a second intake questionnaire to the TWC in which she wrote the word religion next to her checklist. So she didn't go through the formal amendment process, but she was able to sort of submit that form. Ultimately, the TWC found lack of probable cause and she filed in court alleging retaliation and religious discrimination under Title VII. The district court granted her summary judgment in favor, uh, granted summary judgment in favor of the county on all the claims. And then the Fifth Circuit affirmed on the retaliation claim, but reversed and remanded on the religion claim, which is important because then when it went back to the district court level, the county for the first time raised the issue that the religious discrimination claim hadn't properly been added to her to her charge at the TWC and therefore she failed to exhaust the administrative prerequisite requirements. At the time that this case was pending, uh, so it was then re, it was appealed again to the Fifth Circuit. At the time it was pending, there was a circuit split as to whether filing first at the EEOC or a local fair work practices body 
was a jurisdictional prerequisite or was simply an administrative rule-based requirement. Um, and that was important because if it was jurisdictional, then the county's defense couldn't be waived. So even they, though they were presenting it at such a late hour, it was not, it would have been non-waivable and that would have been fine. What the, uh, the Fifth Circuit ultimately sided with the majority of circuits and found that the requirement was not a jurisdictional requirement it, and therefore it could be waived. And then the, it was appealed to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court sided with a majority of the circuits that had found on this issue that the administrative exhaustion requirement is a waivable claim processing rule and not a jurisdictional prerequisite to suit. So I think the important takeaway from this is if you have a client, if on the defense side, if you have a client and they filed a lawsuit in court and they didn't exhaust the prerequisite, the administrative prerequisites, if you want to raise that, you need to raise it early. I see it being relevant, um, for example, if someone, if, if the 300 days in a state that has, you know, the equivalent of the MCAD has passed or the six months has passed and they never submitted the claim, I think that you obviously want to want to raise that defense early so that you're not waiving it. And with that, I will turn it over to the next Thanks, Lynn. Thanks, Lindsay. Um, the, um, I, I'm going to talk to you about the, um, the outer continental shelf. I mean, I don't get too excited. Uh, but um, if you have any clients who are um, operating off the coast of the United States, this is a particularly relevant decision, but it concerns the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act. This is a, um, a decision, Parker Drilling Management Services v. Newton. It's a Thomas decision, and it, turns, it comes down to interpretation of the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act. And it's it's um it, and it whether state law claims will could be brought um for claim for at, based on um activity uh, uh, matters arising out of um, activities on the con the outer continental shelf um the the outer continental shelf lands act extends federal law to the subsoil and seabed of the outer continental shelf and all attachments thereon um so on the outer continental shelf, all law is federal law, and um, the states don't have any interest or jurisdiction on the uh, the outer continental shelf. But the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act does say that an adjacent state, so a state that's adjacent to the uh, the the continent outer continental shelf, its laws are deemed to be federal law. To and the quote is to the extent that they are applicable and not inconsistent with other federal law. So the question before the court was, how do you determine whether a state's law meets that requirement and should be adopted as federal law? And ultimately, the court decided that that a state for a state law to be adopted as surrogate federal law on the outer continental shelf, um, federal law can't it can't it can only happen where federal law doesn't address the relevant issue. So this case arose out of a um, a complaint by um, a, a, a person who worked on the drilling platforms of, of Parker Drilling Management Services off the California coast. And he claimed that he was not being paid in accordance with California law when it comes to um, standby time. And he wasn't paid, and he also wrote a, 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 a minimum wage based um, 
in overtime claims based on the fact that he was not paid in accordance with the California um, minimum wage. Um, and the court ultimately, in a, in a thrilling um, <laughs> analysis of, of statutory construction, um, they looked at the terms, um, the terms applicable and not inconsistent and ultimately concluded that state laws can only be applicable and not inconsistent with federal law where federal law doesn't address the relevant issue. So with respect to this, um, this um, employee's case, um, where there were claims about standby time under California law, federal, California law couldn't be adopted as federal law in that situation because federal law uh, by regulations under the FLSA already uh, addressed that issue where an employee is residing on an employer's premises um, that time not spent, spent not working um, is, is on the premises is not deemed standby time and not comp compensable. Um, the same thing with the minimum wage claims. Um, federal law sets a minimum wage, so the California law could, uh, minimum wage couldn't be adopted um, as the law, federal law on the utter continental shelf. So the, ultimately the case was remanded because not all of the issues were addressed, but um, if you have clients that are, um, are working on the outer continental shelf, um, generally the rules are that uh, the, the, I think that the, the lesson of this case is unless um, federal law is silent on the issue, you are going to be governed by federal employment laws in that area. And um, our last Supreme Court case is going to go back to Barb. Thanks, Chris. Um, so I'm covering the Bab versus Wilkie decision. I'm going to make this very brief because it has limited application um, to most practices, given that it is um, a decision involving the federal sector provision of the ADEA, ADEA um, uh, not the, the, the ADEA pr provision that applies to the private sector. Um, so the court um, in this case decided that um, the language of that section uh, prohibits um, using age as a factor, a motivating factor in making uh, personnel decisions. Um, so it's a lower standard than the but-for uh, causation standard that, that generally applies. Um, however, the court made clear that in order to obtain uh, relief, um, such as compensatory damages, um, back pay, uh, et cetera, you would have to, the, the plaintiff, the federal employee plaintiff would have to prove that um, that, that, that damage um, and harm was, was a but-for cause. Um, so uh, a little bit of a, of a strange decision, um, but ultimately, um, uh, you know, I think the takeaway is that uh, you still have to have but-for causation in order to get the things that we sue for. Um, so I don't think that the analysis of the language about um, having a lower burden of, of proving um, that it was just a factor in the personnel action um, is going to have all that much impact on our practices.
So uh, I'm gonna keep that short um, in, light of, in light of that. And, and it goes back to Chris now to introduce the next case, thank you. So I think from the list, uh, the next case is going to be mine. I believe we're moving through to SJC decisions now. And I'm going to start with the, and I'm going to butcher the plaintiff's name, but Hlatke versus Stewart Healthcare Systems case. And this is a very recent decision in the last few weeks. And what I find interesting is that it broke new ground. Um, despite having a substantial academic industry here, biotech industry here, and healthcare industry here. This is the first case uh, that anyone found in Massachusetts regarding contract damages for a scientist working in a lab they did not own. And so the facts here are really important. I'll do my best to go through it quickly. But the plaintiff, Ms. Slatke, was a cancer researcher who had been the principal investigator in a prolific lab studying cells and, and cancer treatments. And in 2012, she signed an employment agreement with Stewart Healthcare Systems. And as a part of that contract, Stewart agreed to support the research lab that was housed in a nonprofit entity. And so it agreed not only to provide the plaintiff a salary and to provide funding to that research lab, it also agreed to quote support, provide support and suitable office space to the cancer lab. Well, about a year into the three-year contract, Stewart decided to change gears, didn't want to support the lab anymore, and basically spun it off and pulled out. In doing so, the lab quickly, or the nonprofit quickly filed for bankruptcy, and all of the assets, uh, including the equipment and the cells that the plaintiff had been working on for so long were sold at auction. And so there was a trial and the jury returned a verdict for the plaintiff finding that Stewart had breached the employment contract and violated the covenant of good faith and fair dealing. And the jury awarded the plaintiff, I think it was initially $20 million to compensate her and allow her to reconstitute the research lab. Uh, ultimately after post-trial motions, the judge, uh, either ordered a conditional new trial or remitter, which the plaintiff accepted, $10 million to rebuild that cancer lab that went to her. And they went without strings attached. And that's what the SJC struggled with. So in a unanimous decision, they agreed that expectancy damages were appropriate here, that it was appropriate to reward the plaintiff or provide damages to the plaintiff in the amount it would cost to reconstitute that cancer lab, notwithstanding the fact that she did not own it at all. Um, where the court struggled and actually split three to three was on whether or not it was appropriate to provide restrictions on that award of damages. And Justice Gant writing for half of his colleagues argued that providing the plaintiff with $10 million could potentially provide a windfall. She could go on a vacation, buy a yacht, do whatever she wanted. And that was not uh, her expectation in the under the contract. Um, the other half of the justices said that providing restrictions in that fashion would open up a Pandora's box. And ultimately, because it was a three to three split on that issue, the award went without restrictions, which is what the lower court had done before. And so it'll be interesting to see, because I don't think this dynamic is also uncommon here in Massachusetts, where a scientist 
works as the PI in a prolific rat lab, but doesn't actually have an ownership interest. As that, if those issues arise again, this case will lay the foundation for the potential exposure or substantial damages should that support be withdrawn by an employer. And I think I now send it over to Lindsay for a far more interesting case. Thank you, David. So the next case on our list is Sullivan v. Sleepies, which is a case that is a little over a year old at this point. I think it came out right after we did this program last year. So the Sleepies decision is a case about inside salespeople. And for those of you who do wage and hour law, you probably know that uh, wages and salespeople is a problem that comes up pretty often. And you know, while outside salespeople, uh, while there is an exemption for them if they meet certain criteria, Inside salespeople, generally speaking, under both state and federal law, are exempt and entitled to overtime pay. And so the question that arose in Sleepies was whether this group of inside salespeople who were paid on a commission basis and they were also given a daily guaranteed draw that Sleepies had calculated in a way to equate to at least the minimum wage plus time and a half for any overtime for each shift. So they had sort of a daily guarantee that, um, they, that Sleepies argued did not violate minimum wage and overtime law. So the question was whether the plaintiffs were entitled for overtime pay above and beyond that guarantee base sort of commission or payment per day, however you want to think of it anytime they worked over 40 hours in a week or when they were working on Sundays because Massachusetts has a special has special retail laws about time and a half pay on Sundays. So this was at the trial court level because it was a unique question. They certified to the SJC. That's how it got there. Um, when it was at the SJC, plaintiffs, as I just described, argued that they were entitled to overtime pay above and beyond that $125 per day base. Sleepies argued that the $125 a day always met or exceeded the minimum wage and time and a half for any time overtime or Sunday work. And Sleepies also made the argument that they'd relied on two opinion letters um, from the state Department of Labor equivalent when they were coming up with this payment scheme. So the SJC sided with the employees on this and found that the inside employees are entitled to additional overtime payments beyond the commissions or draws that they were given. And the SJC specifically found that the sales employees were entitled to 1.5 times the minimum wage as a separate payment for overtime work in addition to whatever commissions they were entitled to. This was another interesting part of the decision because as those of you who practice in wage and hour law know, it's often quite complicated with commissioned employees or employees who are paid different rates for different shift differentials or for doing different jobs for the same employer to sort of, or given bonuses to come up with what the regular rate of pay was. So it was quite interesting that what the SJC decided to do in this particular case was say that the, the regular rate was the minimum wage, which I think Sleepies was sort of queuing that $125 per day guarantee off of and then awarding damages there. Um, so the SJC also concluded that Sleepy's scheme where they were kind of retroactively allocating and crediting draws and commissions so that they met 
or exceeded the minimum wage and overtime requirements was an improper way to calculate. So I think for you know a lot of employers with inside sales employees, this is important both in making sure that they fix any current scheme, payment schemes that violate it, and also on a going forward basis when thinking about how to pay inside um, employees. Now, it'll be interesting to continue to watch this case as it pens at the lower court level because there are still a number of open questions, at least from my perspective. One is, is this ruling retroactive? So, you know, Sleepy's and presumably other employers were relying on advice from state opinion letters. So is there retroactive liability created by this SJC decision? And if there is, is there a due process defense for employers since they relied on the opinion letters, which I think would be a really fact specific thing to look at. And then there's also, um, again, as those of you who practice in wage and hour law know, sometimes when you're looking at damages for unpaid overtime, when an employee, for example, has been misclassified, depending on where you're physically sitting geographically, some circuits have said that the damages are calculated by paying the, you know, if the person was making $20 an hour, they should get $30 an hour for unpaid overtime. In other jurisdictions, if they had been paid some sort of base and it was, you know, an improperly calculated base because they should have been paid hourly, you would only have to pay kind of the differential of the 10, the, you know, the half time, the $10 an hour that they should have gotten from overtime. And the SJC doesn't really address the calculation of damages here. So it'll be a good case to continue to watch. And since this was a big one for us this year, if any of um, the other panelists have any thoughts on it or want to jump in, happy to hear other perspectives. Otherwise, I, I think it goes back to Chris for the Gamella case. Yes, and I'll, um, uh, unless David or Barb want to uh, chime in on Sleepy's. Uh, One quick David note does. that I think is interesting, and I'm trying to find the site as I do it. I understand that at least one trial court judge has held that the Sleepy's decision applies retroactively. And so obviously we'll see those things work their way up the appellate chain, but there appears to be an argument that's taking hold that it will but that doesn't address your question about the opinion letters and reliance in that context. Thanks, David. Um, so yes, I'm gonna talk about Gamela v. Um, P.F. Chang's China Bistro. I haven't eaten lunch and now I want lettuce wraps, but um, uh, this is not about the lettuce wraps. This is about the reporting, um, the reporting, uh, the reporting pay requirement. Um, an employee of P.F. Chang's brought a uh, putative class action against P.F. Chang's, alleging that the P.F. Chang's was not was violating the Massachusetts reporting pay requirement and not paying employees for the, the reporting for their shift if they were dismissed for, uh, for less, less than three hours, paying them at the minimum wage for at least three hours. Um, brought they claim brought a class action. Um, under the Wage Act and the, the minimum, minimum fair uh, wage law. And um, at issue, the primary issue in Gabella was what is the proper test for deciding class certification um, for uh, a claim under the wa Massachusetts wage laws? And um, the argument of the plaintiff in the case was that it that um, the Rule 23 did not apply because the wage laws contain the language, um, quote, allowing a grieved employee to prosecute in his own name or in his on his own behalf 
or for himself or for others similarly situated a civil action for injunctive relief or for damages. So the plaintiff was arguing that law essentially gave, afforded plaintiffs uh, greater uh, latitude to bring class actions than um, would be permitted under the requirements of Rule 23. And the SJC said no, that um, though um, that, that the, the, the proper test for class certification is Rule 23. Rule 23 sets the standard and the wage laws the, it can't be inferred from the wage laws that a more lenient class certifi certification standard exists for our class actions under the wage law. Um, and finding that that was the, that that rule 23 applied, it revisited a, a dispute as to whether the plaintiff in this case had met the numerosity requirement under uh, rule 23. And the issue of Rule 23 was that the plaintiff had been, was, had been able to, had, had adduced evidence that established that, um, that there were at least hundreds of employees who reported for their scheduled shifts of three or more hours, but received less than three hours of, uh, of pay. Um, but as the, um, uh, the, the employer pointed out, there were a variety of potential reasons why the employee would have uh, not receive three hours of pay in in a certain number of instances. It could instances it could have been because the person voluntarily left, um, and the court said the fa the the fact that there may have been other reasons there may have been a variety of reasons why the employees left um, at, b before working for three hours and the records. That, and there were no records, no employer records to establish the reason why the employee left for less than, in, 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 without working more, at least three hours. And the absence of employee records on there doesn't defeat numerosity, that the plaintiff had established, had set forth a, a sufficient evidence to, to meet the numerosity requirement. And then the final issue in Gamella was um, about offers of judgment. Um, it, there was an the there was an argument by the defendants that um, that at the offer of judgment that was made um, to the plaintiff in the case um, the named plaintiff in the case um, that the plaintiff re uh, rejected that the plaintiff didn't accept didn't respond to um, and he uh, and the plaintiff um, informed the court of his intention to appeal the denial of class certification whether that the the offer of judgment and the tender offer that was made to the plaintiff uh, mooted the case and the court determined that it did not because the plaintiff didn't didn't accept either the offers and inform the court of his intention to appeal from the denial of class certification the um, plaintiff's motion to dismiss for mootness was improperly granted so a few different in interesting issues in gamella um, but the most significant is the stand the prop proper standard Rule 23 is going to govern. Um, if you're going to bring a class action under the Wage Act, um, you have to contend with Rule 23. Thanks, Chris. Um, I'm up next with uh, the Auto, Auto Mile Holdings case, which is um, uh, a case dealing with the enforceability and appropriate remedy uh, regarding an anti-rating covenant. Um, very briefly, um, uh, Mr. McGovern, who is an executive at Auto Mile Holdings, uh, was terminated by the company um, and did not, had not 
signed um, a non-solicit agreement. Um, the company decided to buy him out. He was a minority shareholder in the company and um, there was not a buyback provision, but the parties negotiated a buyout um, and in exchange for the buyout, which did not get discounted for minority interest, um, uh, Mr. McGovern agreed to sign an 18-month uh, employee non-solicit agreement. Um, thereafter, he violated, set up a competing business and violated the agreement by hiring, uh, I believe, 16 employees. Um, and thereafter, um, on a mile threatened suit, they negotiated a settlement um, and, and an extension of the employee non-solicit. Um, and despite that, Mr. McGovern still went on to violate the non-solicit by hiring three more key employees. Um, so not surprisingly, um, uh, Automile Holdings then decided to finally sue. Um, and uh, the issue, um, the, the, it was a bench trial. The, the Superior Court judge awarded equitable relief by extending the non-solicitation covenant by a year. Um, uh, the court, uh, it was uh, appealed and, and the SJC went to the SJC. The SJC held that extending the anti-rating covenant may be proper, um, but wasn't in this case because the Superior Court had not made a determination on whether um, uh, there was no adequate uh, money damages remedy. Um, and so sent the case back to make that determination. Um, what's interesting about the case is that um, I think is the, the enforceability analysis of the covenant, the court focused on uh, treated the case as a sale business case. Um, uh, making note of equal bargaining power um, and that there was a legitimate business interest in protecting uh, the company's confidential information that McGovern had gotten access to as an executive uh, concerning salary information and, and other inside information that he could use to persuade employees to join him. Um, so I think that those uh, those factors are um, interesting factors to analyze if this ever comes up in the employment context um, uh, that you can you can make some distinctions and arguments um, on both of those enforceability points and finally um, a final point of note is that the court um, noted that in in a couple of footnotes that um, the agreement did not contain a tolling provision and had it contained a, a tolling provision, um, you know, it might've been a different result. So with that, um, I'll hand it off to David who's gonna talk about the Parker versus Enernock decision. Thanks, Barb. So I, I get that this doesn't have the clickbait appeal as um, landmark civil rights decisions, but short of that, I think this is one of the, the more important cases that we get to review this year. Um, Parker versus Enernock is a Wage Act case. And I think to understand it properly, we need to just do a little bit of quick discussion of the statutory scheme. So the Wage Act's got a number of components. Section 148 requires the prompt payment of wages, which include commissions on accrued but unused vacation time, 
Section 148A uh, contains an anti-retaliation provision. You can't take an adverse action against an employee for asserting their rights under the Wage Act. Violations of those provisions flow through to Section 150, which provides private right of action and for treble damages for lost wages as a result of a violation of the statute. In Parker, what we're dealing with is a commission case as well as a retaliation termination case. Uh, Francois Parker was a sales uh, employee at Enernock Inc. She closed the biggest deal in company history. And I think it was 20, year, $20 million over five years. Per her commission plan, she was entitled to two payments based on the way the deal was signed. And when I say the way the deal was signed, what I mean is that the contract, the customer, Eaton Industries signed with her employer, Enernock Inc., there was an opt-out provision one year in. And so Ms. Parker was entitled to a commission on that first year of the deal when it was signed. Then she was, assuming nobody opted out, she got a second payment after that one year passed and the contract continued. So after receiving her first payment, Ms. Parker raised concerns to her employer that she got an improperly low amount. In response to her complaint, the company fired her and she filed claims under the Wage Act um, for failure to fully pay wages as well as for retaliatory termination. And after a jury trial, which took place years on down the line, side note, in the interim, uh, it turns out that Eaton Industries did not terminate that contract early. Um, the jury returned a verdict, finding for Ms. Parker on both of her Wage Act claims, providing her damages in the amount of the underpayment from that first payment, as well as I think a 300 and something thousand dollar payment for that second commission payment that she would have received one year into the deal, but for her unlawful termination. After judgment notwithstanding the verdict was denied, the trial court uh, judge had in front of him a decision about trebling under the statute. And the judge there employed a statutory analysis that was relatively simple and had some appeal to some, which is that I treble the lost wages for the first payment, but the second is not a wage. And his reasoning was that the statute said a commission is a wage if it is definitively determined and due and payable. And because that money was not due and payable until well after the date of her termination, that amount was not subject to trebling. He also noted that the commission plan had uh, a retained employment provision requiring that in order to get a, pay a commission payment, the employee had to still be employed on the pay date. The SJC rejected that analysis. And what the SJC pointed out was that while it has held that a commission can be definitively determined and due and payable, that's not a categorical rule and that a commission can still be a wage even when those conditions are not met. What they, what they argued and what they pointed out was the definitively determined and due and payable language speaks to when it must be paid promptly in order to comply with section 148. But it can still be a wage if it's something that's earned. In fact, if you look down at a, the footnote, the court actually goes into an analysis of what the definition of the term wages is. And what they say is, as a type of payment made based on a percentage of a sale, a commission paid by an employer is clearly a wage. They moved forward to suggest that, 
and this is where I think we're going to see a lot of litigation going forward, that this continued employment provision that a lot of commission plans now have cannot be used to create a contingency that prevents the employee from receiving their commission. And what the court basically suggested was that there, and we'll see a lot of cases, I'm sure some of my management colleagues will, will talk about where this is going to be heading, but the notion that a fortune claim, that terminating an employee so as to avoid paying them uh, a big commission or, or bonus or something like that for work that's already been completed is no longer just a contract claim, but may become a wage act claim. And that's what uh, the SJC opened the door to in Internoc, and I'm sure we'll have a lot more litigation on that in years to come. So with that, I think I get to send this over to Lindsay to discuss Deprada. I was going to jump in on this for a second, too, because I just think from a management perspective and, you know, not to, to turn this into a COVID thing, but it's an issue that we're seeing a lot with clients who are maybe having cash flow problems and there are commissions that might not have previously fallen under something that was, you know, calculable due and owing, but after the Parker v. Enternock, I think, you know, clients have to look much more closely when they're thinking about um, sort of reducing commissions, making sure it's only on a totally going forward basis and not, um, you know, amending plans where commissions have already been earned when they're furloughing employees and the, or laying off employees and the commissions would have been due at some time in the future. I think that there's a lot more to think about now. So I definitely encourage anyone who's advising on the employer side to, to think through these issues with your clients, because this is definitely a place where I think a lot of companies think that it's more black or white than it is, and especially a lot of national employers who aren't used to dealing with what we have in Massachusetts. So I think it's certainly a trap for the, a trap for the unwary, and it's an important case. Yeah, I think Lindsay really zeroes in on an important point, which is when these commissions become earned. And there had been some, some thought out there that a commission was not earned until it was definitively determined and due and payable. But if you look at the Parker case, part of what they hold is that in the context of a commission, and they cite to Awa versus Coverall for this, when an employee has completed the labor, service, or performance required of him, he has earned his wage. And in the commission context, that's reshaped our thinking over when those payments are required to be made and when they might be subject to treble damages if they're not. For sure, and it can also create a significant gap between when an employee's employment may end and when a commission may still need to be paid for them, which I think is sort of mind, you know, the clients have put this employee left January 31st and we don't pay commissions until, you know, we get all the payments on a contract and this contract won't be fully paid until the end of, you know, 2021. Well, that, that's, you know, I think a lot of time, previously a lot, and in a lot of other states, people even put, you know, if it's three months after you've been terminated or this or that, you're not going to receive, you know, you, you're no longer eligible for the commission. But in Massachusetts, uh, we have to think hard, both when we're writing commission plans and also in terms of exiting employees who have done the work to earn those commissions. All right, well, uh, with that, and thank you, David, that's a, definitely an interesting and one of the most important ones this year. I'll move on to the DePrado case, which is another interesting one that I think has a lot of important takeaways for, um, for employers and employees alike. So 
I'll preface this case by saying I volunteered to do this one because anyone who is a management side lawyer who's on the call may relate to the situation where they get a call from you know, HR or an operating officer at a company that says, we had an employee who said that they needed to go out on some sort of medical leave. And then we found out because another person's friends with them on Facebook or Instagram, that they've been away on vacation. And can you terminate that employee since they've been away, since they were away on vacation? And there, there have been a number of both of also federal cases um, with these types of facts, and it's, it's fact specific as we'll see in DePrado. But as much as I think it's a knee jerk reaction for a lot of employers to say, if someone's out on medical leave and they're on vacation, they're abusing medical leave and we can fire them, that simply isn't the way that the law works. And I think DePrado and the facts of it have a lot of lessons for us, but also give an interesting take on why you can't make that kind of automatic knee-jerk reaction when you're dealing with employees who are out on leave. So DePrado reached the SJC after a jury trial, and in the jury trial, you, you see the calculation of damages in there. DePrado was essentially awarded, including attorney's fees and interest, a verdict that is expected to exceed, that was expected to time to exceed over $2 million, and I, I'm sure it did, given the time it took for this case to pen at the SJC as well. So DePrado was a state worker. He was an IT manager at the MWRA. He told his employer he needed uh, FMLA leave for surgery on his foot. And so he applied for it. He submitted a doctor's note and he said he would be out for four to six weeks after surgery and he'd be able to transition to putting some weight on his foot after four weeks. So a few weeks after the surgery, DePrado actually asked to return from medical leave early because he could walk with crutches and he didn't want to exhaust his paid vacation time. So, you know, this is a case where even though he was out on FMLA, he was a state employee with a significant amount of accrued vacation time and he was um, having to use the paid vacation time against his unpaid FMLA time. So the MWARA, when DePrado asked to return, refused to allow him to return without a doctor's note. Um, and DePrado said he couldn't obtain a doctor's note until his next scheduled appointment weeks later. So you know, this is the first, I think, um, point, and this again is even more important in the COVID era when people are maybe having trouble accessing medical care. Employers should always think hard about whether or not they they need to get um, a doctor's note and what they need it to say and what the employee's restrictions and getting that might be, right? So he didn't get it. And near the end of his pre-scheduled FMLA leave of about six weeks, he went on a two-week vacation to Mexico with his family. The MWRA didn't find out about it while he was out on leave, but found out about it shortly after he came back. So DePrado came back to work, and very quickly after returning to work, he told the uh, Director of Human Resources that he was going to, in the near future, need to take FMLA leave for knee surgery. The human resources director forwarded the request to an HR manager with the message, is he serious? And the HR manager replied, OMG. And this is another, I think, point in this case where you look at it and say, the ultimate verdict in this case was certainly influenced by some arguably unprofessional emails by human resources, which were put into evidence and ultimately really influenced, I think, the jury's verdict in terms of finding that there was some hostility and later terminating um, Mr. DePrado. So the same day as HR sent these emails across to each other, 
HR also found out about the Mexican vacation. They then started an investigation and they ultimately fired Mr. DePrado for misrepresenting his medical condition and abusing FMLA leave. So DePrado filed a lawsuit alleging discrimination and retaliation under FMLA, ADA, and Chapter 151B. The interesting part of this case that went up to the SJC is that the trial court gave an instruction that, um, I mean, good, good lawyering on the plaintiff's side, uh, because I'm sure this is one that anyone would love to have, but the instruction said that the jury could not consider that DePrado took or requested FMLA leave or spent time recuperating in a particular location or in a particular manner when determining whether the MWRA had a legitimate reason to terminate him. So the basis of the appeal after the jury verdict was this particular instruction. And what the SJC said is that although they found that the instruction was problematic, it wasn't prejudicial because the instruction was intended to minimize the risk that the jury would be influenced by some evidence the MWRA was putting in. So the MWRA had put in a, a significant amount of evidence at trial um, you know, including photographs from, you know, a lovely vacation in Mexico, which, you know, the SJC pointed out the employer, the MWR, didn't even have those photos at the time that they made the decision. So the SJC said the trial court was trying to counteract the um, risk that these photos of a lovely vacation in Mexico would play to the jury's possible resentment against DePrado for taking this vacation. Um, the, and then the court also noted that in this particular case, the jury awarded punitive damages, meaning in this context that it found MWRA's conduct in firing Mr. DePrado to be outrageous, which meant that the SJC determined that since the jury awarded punitive damages, they didn't think that this particular instruction was material and prejudicial in the outcome. Um, the court, so, you know, on the management side, I think that the court did throw some bones to employers. The message isn't that employees can do sort of whatever they want and travel with no limits while they're out on medical leave. The court said that the pictures raised legitimate concerns about whether DePrado was entirely truthful about the scope of his activities, but again, you know, ultimately that was up for the jury to decide. And then I think my favorite quotation from the decision was that an employee recovering from a leg injury may sit with his or her leg raised by the seashore while fully complying with FMLA leave requirements, but may not climb Machu Picchu without abusing the FMLA process. And I think that really gets back to the heart of the law in this area and the heart of the decision, which is if an employee decides to do something other than, you know, frankly, sit at home while they're out on FMLA leave, that may be perfectly reasonable as long as the thing that they're doing doesn't make the FMLA leave look unnecessary or fraudulent. So if this guy had been out mountain climbing when he said he was out for a leg injury, perhaps that would have, you know, led to a different outcome. Although, I'm still not quite sure it would have here, given that the employer wouldn't let him come back early when he said he was feeling better. Um, so query whether that would have made a difference. But, you know, I think to the same point, if, you know, if an employer finds out that an employee really is truly abusing the leave, then the employee could be investigated and terminated for, for abusing that leave and for, you know, potentially submitting fraudulent documentation or whatnot. But the fact that an employee decides to do something that might be considered fun or relaxing while they're out on FMLA leave doesn't give rise to, to a reason to terminate them. And if any of my other colleagues want to jump in here, I, I would. 
Yeah, I mean, sorry, go ahead, uh, sorry, sorry, you know, David, uh, you can go. I mean, I, <laughs> I, 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 what I find striking about this case is a problem I run into. I mean, two problems I run into extremely free with, with extreme frequency in representing um, uh, management and um, dealing with HR employees is, um, is there is no such thing as an HR um, employee privilege. I can't even tell you how, I can't tell you how many times that I've had very, very smart executives emailing their VP of HR as if they were emailing their attorney. And when I tell them that there is no privilege attached to that, there's no confidentiality. I mean, if there's confidential information, I'm sure we have a confidentiality in the case, but those emails are getting produced. They are you know, taken aback. And so I think that this provides a real lesson that how harmful one or two, you know, off color, you know, emails, which at the time between two, uh, two HR employees, it wouldn't seem to be problematic can be can really shape a case. The other thing is, um, I have I have some HR. So I think so my favorite eight, one of my favorite clients. Anytime an employee comes to them and says, "I saw on Facebook," they say, "Stop right there. I don't want to know. I don't want to know," um, because um, there, you run into so many problems with people monitoring employees' Facebook pages and uh, and and employees feeling as though their coworkers are getting away with something that they shouldn't be getting away with. And I think that HR professionals need to be, I think this case says tread carefully when you get into that approach, because what seems to be misconduct may not be. And I think that employers need to be careful when it comes to that. That being said, we're getting into a new age now where employers are being faced with, People who um, be motivated by anti, you know, anti-racism are bringing to attention people racist, you know, racially motivated posts people are making on Facebook pages, and that's something that employers are dealing with now. So, the 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 HR implications of social media live on. The one quick note I want to make that I think my colleagues in the plaintiffs bar should note is they're writing their demand letters and perhaps management bar should be thinking about as they advise their clients is that this case makes it really clear that punitive damages and liquidated damages are available at the same time. And so whether you're dealing with that in the leave context, FMLA, ADA 151B, or potentially an age claim and a gender claim mixed together, when you have something that provides for liquidated and punitives, you can dramatically uh, increase the defendant's exposure there. And it's something to keep an eye out for as you're analyzing claims. Yeah, no, that's a great point. If you look in the case summary at how you get to the math of the $2 million, you're getting to the math of the $2 million with um, only about $200,000 in front pay and back pay combined. So that's, that's significant. Um, obviously, when, you know, on the management side, we receive the demand letters, you want to look at what's the potential, you know, pay exposure, but obviously there's this other significant piece here. So that's a very good point. So, um, Barbara, do you have any? Barbara, do you have anything you want to add there? No, just that um, this often comes up in my practice when um, leave is requested, uh, you know, for a mental health issue, whether it's depression or anxiety, and it comes up a lot that they act that 
clients are actually instructed by their treating medical providers to take a break, take time off, do something relaxing, you know, so in that context, it can, it can come up a lot. Um, I just like to know about it before they go away. <laughs> yeah, please tell me. <laughs> right. Um, so I'm going to move on. I think we're going to do two more cases. Um, we have two public union case, uh, uh, public, uh, public employer labor cases that Lindsay and I did summaries on. Um, given the time constraints, I think we'll just re refer you to those summaries. But um, second to last case, which I'm going to cover, is the Lynch v. Crawford case, which would be of interest of anybody who represents nonprofits and specifically um, volunteer board members of nonprofits. Essentially, this is a case where it was a wage act case. Um, employers of a nonprofit, employees of a nonprofit were um, be, you know, were claiming that they weren't paid for all the amounts that they worked before this now defunct nonprofit um, shut down. They brought claims against an individual who was a board member, but they also claimed was, was at their, the, acting as the nonprofit's president. And the nonprofit, um, the, 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 the um, the not the the board the director um, moved for summary judgment asking for dismissal on the basis that these were covered by the federal uh, volunteer protection act and um, the charitable immunity um, uh, protections under Massachusetts law um, plaintiffs argued that uh, the um, that though the the charitable immunity under federal and state law only applied if the two common law claims and didn't apply to statutory violations the sjc disagreed with that and said yes um wage act claims are covered by both uh, uh layers uh both um uh statute um, immunity statutes uh, but um it's still determined that this individual was not entitled to summary judgment because under both statutes, there's there are carve outs which um, limit the protection that an, that a a, a, a volunteer um, would have um, under the federal law. The federal law, um, the charitable immunity under the federal law provides that uh, carves out um, uh, acts where harm is caused by the volunteer's willful or criminal misconduct, gross negligence reckless misconduct or a conscious flagrant indifference to the rights or safety of the individual harmed by the volunteer. And the SJC said, because a wage act violation for failure to timely pay wages, um, regardless of the volunteer's intent, constitutes criminal misconduct, it fell outside of the charitable immunity. So if they determined that this individual had in fact engaged in a wage act violation, he wouldn't be able to claim federal um, immunity. Uh, charitable immunity. Um, the interestingly, um, state the Massachusetts um, charitable immunity statute provides greater protection than that is the federal law. That carves out acts that only um, acts that or or omissions intentionally designed to harm or grossly negligent acts or omissions which result in harm to a person. Um, and even though that's a more favorable standard to the the volunteer the court said that the, this individual still wasn't entitled to summary judgment because there was evidence that this person engaged in, um, had engaged in acts or omissions that were intentionally designed to harm. Specifically, the allegation was that this individual had informed, had been informed that the pay, nonprofit was not gonna make payroll, but still encouraged employees to keep working. 
and um, and that the, the SJC determined would raise a material issue of fact as to whether this individual acted with an intentional design to harm the employees by failing to pay them wages they were due. So um, very, you want to be very careful if you're acting as a volunteer um, board member of a nonprofit um, and getting involved in day to day. So for our last case, I'm going to turn it over to uh, to Barb to talk about the uh, to talk about the, um, some so, uh, the uh, Boston Police Department. Thanks, Chris. I'm going to keep this very brief since we're uh, out of time. We do have one question: um, uh, the Boston Police Department versus Civil Service Commission case. Um, the department bypassed a police officer applicant in 2013 based on the applicant having tested positive uh, three years earlier for cocaine use via uh, hair sample test. Um, the applicant uh, vehemently denied ever using cocaine um, and appealed to the commission. The commission determined um, that the department hadn't demonstrated a, a reasonable justification for the bypass given documented concerns um, of reliability on, on the uh, hair drug test generally, um, and also that there was credible evidence um, supporting the applicant. Uh, the department then went to the Superior Court, um, which overturned the Civil Services decision, um, and uh, the applicant and the commission then appealed to the SJC, um, which reversed ordering the Superior Court to affirm the commission's decision um, holding that the commission properly applied the reasonable justification standard that applies to bypass decisions um, rather than the higher just cause standard that applies to termination decisions um, and that there was substantial evidence to support the commission's decision. Um, you know, the, I, I note that there was um, a, a high level of scrutiny um, by the SJC on the, on the use of hair sample tests. So my takeaway is, uh, you know, police departments should stop using hair sample tests given the uh, unreliability. And um, that's all I have to say about, about that case. So that concludes our report on um, recent SJC um, and Supreme Court decisions. I think we did have one question um, yeah, I can jump in and answer that one quickly and if okay. anyone else wants to weigh in. So the question is, in DePrado BMWRA, do you think the fact the employee initially wanted to come back from medical leave early was an important fact? And I think Barbara already touched on this, but how would we advise an employee who's considering going on vacation during medical leave? So on the first half, I'm not sure that it was outcome determinative here, but I absolutely think that the fact that he wanted to come back from leave influenced the jury's decision in finding that the employer's conduct was outrageous and in awarding the punitive damages. I think legally, even if he hadn't asked to come back, if he'd gone on vacation in the last couple of weeks of his medical leave and there was no evidence that he was, you know, like they said, climbing Machu Picchu or doing anything inconsistent with his leave time, I, I think the outcome still may have been the same, but I'm guessing the verdict would have been much lower if it weren't for the employer's sort of conduct and telling him he couldn't get come back and then punishing him by firing him for going on vacation during that very period of time that they said they wouldn't have him back. 
Thanks, Lindsay. Uh, yeah, so I guess that reaches the end of our program. We went a little bit over, but you keep in mind, this is this program's typically a CLE where we're going for three hours. So we, 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 um, we uh, I commend uh, Barb and Lindsay and David for talking about the, particularly the, the more substantively interesting cases in such a short period of time. Um, so this wraps up. Um, this is my last program for the year, I think, where I'm going to be on. I know we have another one coming up, Barb, right on, on OSHA requirements, but um, I, looking at the attendee list, I see a lot of people who regularly attend our, our BBA brown bag lunches. And so I just want to give a, give a shout out to them and say, thank you very much for um, attending our, our, our programming this year. Barb and I, along with the rest of the, uh, of the committee are always looking for, really interesting topics that we think um, our peers in the in the employment bar want to hear about. So if you have any ideas, you can always reach out to Barb or I. And, um, and um, I, I think unless Barb has anything else, we'll turn it back over to the BBA. I just, uh, on behalf of the BBA, I just want to thank our speakers and to everyone who attended today on an excellent program. And we hope to see all the attendees at the OSHA program. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all.